Good morning. Our key verse this morning is Acts 9 and verse 6. Acts 9 and verse 6. And I'll read the verse to you. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And it's that phrase, Lord, what do you want me to do, that I'd like to talk about today. This time of, a year, of year reminds me of my first full-time job after I got my degree. I was an assistant professor of physics at Geneva College. And I was hired in January, so this was the first semester of that. And I was filling in for another uh, a professor who had left uh, to go to another university to teach. He left unexpectedly, and um, that was my first full-time job. And when you went to the administrative office to get your check, and in those days you walked to the administrative office to get your check, they had a verse, it was a Christian college, it was Geneva College in western Pennsylvania, about 30 miles north of Pittsburgh. They had a plaque on the wall. It said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Acts 9 and 6. And as I got my little check, uh, especially in May, which was the last check, because they didn't have the system where you, you, know, you take a little bit out and save it for the summer, uh, that was my last check until September, and that verse made such an impression on me. It's, it's, I think I've said that prayer more often than any other prayer in my whole life. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And I would say it in the King James because that's where it made the biggest impression on my heart. But we're going to talk about this verse this morning and what it meant to Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. The apostle, uh, I'll call him Saul for most of, the, most of the, 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 our talk this morning because we're dealing with him uh, before he gets saved, before he comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and his Savior. And his name was Saul, the name of a king. Uh, after he became a, a believer and followed uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, his name seemed to change to Paul, which means little one. So it goes from big, pompous Paul, who's uh, quite an intellect. In fact, uh, Matt would be appreciate this. He was a, a student in divinity, okay, and in the Mosaic law. And in fact, uh, he says in Galatians 1 and 14, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly jealous for the traditions of my fathers. So he had an advanced degree in divinity. And uh, so with that, uh, uh, with those weapons, so to speak, intellectual weapons, let's turn to a Acts chapter 8. Just flip over a page to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, uh, 2, and 3, when we'll find out how he makes use of his great education. Now Saul was consenting to his death, and that was the death of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. He held his clothes. At that time, uh, uh, 
a, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And then we'll go over to chapter 9 and verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So Saul had a real problem with Christianity, the Christians. And he called them those of the way. And uh, he felt like his job, I don't know if you remember in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a I think it was in the days of, was it Moses, when there was a man named Phineas who there was sin in the camp and he took a javelin and he went to the two that were sinning and thrust the javelin through both the man and a, a woman from another tribe, from another culture. He killed them both at the same time. And in a way, that's what Paul is doing. He thinks Christianity is a threat to, to Judaism. It's a threat. And he's, uh, he, he's going to stop a plague, so to speak. And he's going to do it by creating havoc in the church. And so we find out in, in, in the beginning of Acts chapter 9 that he gets letters to go all the way to Damascus. Now, Damascus is 130 miles away. So the number of Christians had really grown that there'd be that many Christians 130 miles away, a six-day uh, a, a six trek for him to go to Damascus to seek them out and destroy them. And he needed special permission, so he had to get these letters from the officials. Tremendous anger against believers. They were a threat to Judaism. So his, he had his PhD, and he knew Judaism, and he, he felt that was the truth, and he was going to be zealous for it. That's how he was going to spend his education, uh, pursuing those who didn't follow what he believed. Now, we read later now here, at, uh, he came near Damascus, well, verse, verse 2, he was looking, as he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. It didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. And he probably would bring children too. He was that zealous for the Lord. And they were of the way, okay? And we know that verse. It's, it's a verse we've committed to memory where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And yet the whole, it's, it wasn't just a religion, it was a way. It was a way of life, in a way. You could say that, you know. It's not just a, a religion he was pursuing. It was people who followed a way of life. They were, going to be, they were followers of Jesus. They were of the way. And he was going to find them, bind them up, and bring them back to Jerusalem, hopefully to put them to death. He was going to stop this religion. And in verse 3, we find out what, what happens. As he journeyed, he came near, near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Later in Acts, he has the opportunity to share his testimony with others. First, uh, from steps, as he, he talks to a whole crowd, and he calls it a great light. And later to Agrippa, he calls it a, a light that was brighter than the sun. I mean, 
and he fell to the ground. And you could just picture him, you know, scrunching up his eyes and uh, blinded and hearing a voice. Now, everybody else seemed to have seen the light. He says later, everybody else saw the light, but nobody heard the voice except for him. And he's blinded by it, and he, and he hears this voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that was, we'll find out in the next verse, that was the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the God of heaven. You know, there's a, the same word, uh, Paul addresses him, the, the voice, whoever's speaking this, he calls him Lord. He said in verse 5, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And there's a lot in these, these, these two verses here. Uh, first of all, the first thing that struck me is that Paul is not, the Lord is, he probably heard the Lord Jesus speaking in Jerusalem. He probably did, okay? It wasn't that long ago that as he's pursuing the Christians, that he probably was in Jerusalem because that's where he studied, okay? That's where he's teaching, probably, and pursuing his education. Uh, and yet, he, he, he hears this voice. And it turns out to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls him Lord. And that's very interesting. He realizes God was speaking to him. And this understanding that this voice he heard was God is a profound truth. You and I hear voices sometimes in dreams or through ministry, just, hmm, I think the Lord, or our conscience, I think the Lord's talking to me. Adam heard the voice of God. Where, Adam, where are you? Uh, and he heard God speak to him. Samuel, we heard about Samuel a couple weeks ago. Samuel heard uh, a voice, but he's so immature and he really didn't know the Lord, and he didn't know it was God speaking to him. And there might be someone here this morning who really doesn't know the Lord as their personal Savior. They haven't come to the point of fully trusting him as their own Lord and Savior. Who's speaking, okay? Uh, and Eli knew a little bit more about God than Samuel did, and he said, and finally the point came, he said, listen to what this voice is saying. Uh, and, and uh, the voice calls him again, Samuel. Samuel, and Samuel responds, speak, for your servant hears you, okay? And, and so, so Samuel got to the point where he heard God speaking. There's a lot of circumstances, and we'll cover some of them this morning, where we're uh, trying to understand who's speaking to us. Uh, so it was Adam, we had Samuel, God was speaking to Pharaoh uh, through Moses. Uh, Pharaoh simply uh, hardened his heart, okay? And God confirmed it by really hardening his heart, okay? It was hard to begin with, but God said, okay, I'm not going to change it. You've made your decision. You've made your choice. I'm going to really harden your heart. So Pharaoh was lost. God spoke to him, and he's lost by it because he's hardened his heart. He gets, I don't want to hear God. Um, uh, Agrippa, uh, God was speaking to him through Paul's ministry, Saul, as he be, when he became a, a, a minister of the word of God. And Agrippa says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. He, God's speaking to him through the preacher, and he won't listen. Okay, he's, he's kind of said, no, I don't want to hear it. 
And who knows what happened to Agrippa? Maybe God finally hardened his heart. You rebel enough against God, and that's it. God just finalizes the whole thing. God seems so, is so gracious and long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but there are some who are so determined, make up their minds, he just confirms it. Okay? He, he hardened his heart. Did Agrippa get saved? We don't know. There's Korah, the rebellion of Korah. These are all just a few. Of, okay, there won't be any more after this. But uh, God spoke to him. Okay, he had to make a decision. Who's going to follow him? Who wants to become a, a, a priest before me? Okay, is it going to be Korah or is it going to be Moses? And Korah says, I want to be the priest. And uh, people had to choose. Well, anyway, whoever went with Korah, there was an earthquake. And God spoke to him in, in an earthquake. Later, we'll have one more uh, example where God's trying to speak to someone and get a message across. And a lot depends, I think, on whether you are a believer or not a believer on how God speaks to you. I was reading this biography that someone shared with me of J. Vernon McGee. And J. Vernon McGee said this, I believe that the Spirit of God uses and works through the conscience of a believer today. Also, I think it is possible for an unbeliever to reach the place where his conscience is cauterized. Kind of a medical term, some of you may understand. Uh, you stop blood, you cauterize it, okay? It can't flow anymore. There's no more listening, no more life going through that vein anymore. You're gonna cauterize it. Uh, no more life there. God, an unbeliever can get to that point where his conscience is almost like dead. He can do anything and not have any conscience about it. That's an unbeliever. Can get to that point. So praise God if you have a conscience. If you're saved, that is how God can speak to you. If you're not saved, God is still working with you. He wants you to bring you to a point where you'll be like the Apostle Paul and recognize God is trying to speak to me. What does he want to say? We'll talk about that. So Paul had to be convinced one thing, that he was sinning. So Jesus said to him in verse 4, why are you persecuting me? Well, I'm persecuting the Christians, not you. Well, you are persecuting me. I take it personally. That's what Jesus is saying. I fully identify myself with the believers. If you're persecuting another believer, you're persecuting me. That's the way Jesus takes it. Okay, and That's what he's accusing Paul of, of, of Saul, of sin. He's he's, he's persecuting those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's persecuting Christ. You're a sinning against me. And finally, with all this, the weight of this, Saul has, has fallen to the ground. Okay, He has his letters in his hand, probably, or in his pouch, and he just falls to the ground. He realizes he was in a high place, so to speak. I'm all puffed up with my PhD in divinity, and I'm doing God's work, and he's, he's chasing after the wrong thing and he falls to the ground. Sometimes we have to be brought to a low place before God can speak to us and we get his full attention. Excuse me one second. It says Joe. <laughs> My dad told me this story a long time ago. A farmer wanted to buy a mule from his neighbor. He asked the neighbor if, if the mule had any problems. And not a problem, the neighbor said. The, ma the mule will do anything you ask. All you have to do is ask him nicely. Uh, so the 
price for the mule was fair, so the farmer brought the mule. The very next day, the farmer wanted to plow his field, so he hitched the plow to the mule. And the farmer said, get up. But the mule paid no attention. The farmer tried talking nicely until his face almost turned blue. Please get up. Please get up. Please. The mule wouldn't move. Did no good, so he called his neighbor over. The neighbor came over. He heard the problem. He walked over and picked up a two-by-four and whack, whack, right across the mule's head. He whispered in the mule's ear. The mule started plowing back and forth across the field, turning the soil over without anyone having to stand behind the plow. And the farmer said, I thought you, you said never to mistreat your mule. You said all I had to do was to talk nicely to him. Well, the neighbor said, you have to first get his attention. <laughs> and my, my dad told me that a long time ago. You have to get his, his attention. Does Saul have the attention of the Lord Jesus Christ? Does the Lord have Saul's attention? Yes. Okay, he's at this point here. He's been blinded by it. Sometimes it's just a twinge of our conscience and God is speaking to us. But he needs our full attention. And... Uh, God now has Saul's full attention. He says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. That's in some translations. That's later in, uh, in the book of Acts when Paul's telling his, his, uh, uh, his conversion story. He explains it later. So we know it's in here. Uh, it's been added by the, those who... Uh, translated the book of Luke, but he did say that. It's hard for you to kick against the goats, and a goat is a long pointed stick, okay? You're, you're driving a wagon to the market, you have a long pointed stick and the ox won't move, you kind of poke it in the legs, okay, and get it moving, get it moving. And it's annoying to the ox, it's very annoying to the ox, but it gets him going. And the ox can kick against it. And why did the Lord say this? Well, the Lord knows our heart. You see, he knew Saul's heart. And my guess, there was a twinge of conscience in Saul's heart. Something he was doing, even though he was so zealous, he knew something was wrong with what he was doing. Outward, he's all business. He comes with his letters to take those uh, Christians who have been, have been caught in Damascus, and he's creating havoc in the church. But deep down, something's wrong. What could it be? And you can use your sanctified imagination to figure out what it was. I don't know what it was. One person has suggested he was reflecting on the death of Stephen and how Stephen died. It was Stephen's testimony at the end that is still speaking to his heart. But you can use your own imagination. There's something in his conscience that's bothering him. And that's how the Lord uh, says, you're kicking against it. But there's a purpose for your conscience, uh, a twinge in your conscience. There's a reason for that. I'm trying to speak to you. You, know, you have my attention in the light. He gets his full attention. Okay. Well, the next question is the, really the whole point of my uh, talk this morning. It's in verse 6, the next, the next point. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he acknowledges the one who's speaking to him is the Lord. And that, it, it, like I said, that, that's a, 
a very deep and profound understanding that he has at the very beginning. It's God speaking to him. I think sometimes through our circumstances, I was trying to think of some of the circumstances that have spoken to me that have turned out to be part of the Lord's uh, speaking to me. Surely he, surely he speaks to us through his word. And that gives us guidance sometimes in difficult situations as to where to go to the left or whether to go right. Okay, he speaks to us through his word. But he does through circumstances too. Um, your job, in my case, at, at May, no money or lack of a job, uh, an issue with your spouse, an issue with your education, an issue with your family. Where will you spend eternity? What is the purpose of my life? How many times have you sat back and asked yourself that question? Why am I here? What can I do? There's the prayer. Lord, what do you want me to do? Those are the kind of issues that come up where you have to ask this question, or you have difficulties with family. Or uh, When I was going to college, uh, I went to San Diego State for my undergraduate school. And there were many times I was out of money, okay? And I'd go out in the backyard and I'd just, you know, say, I really have to grow up, <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, when you first go to college, man, you're free and you want to live the college life, you know? And uh, uh, I had that experience for about one month. <laughs> then you got back, oh man, you look out, what am I going to do, you know? Uh, you, I have to grow up. And that's kind of one of those life experiences. You're at, you're, you're at the end, and you ask yourself, well, I wasn't a believer then, but I, you know, I could say, well, I know I have to grow up. Uh, Lord, now that I'm a believer, when those circumstances happen, uh, uh, I was working for the government for a while. I had a, a wonderful job as a civil servant, as a program manager in Washington, D.C. That's where I met Dawn and her daughter, Gina. Uh, and it was a great job. Ronald Reagan came into office and he's wiping out all the civilian research in the area that I was doing work in and everybody's getting their pink slips. Lord, what do you want me to do? See, I've prayed that prayer many times and you should be praying it too if you're a believer. If it's a twang of conscience, if it's a big issue like school uh, or where, where can I serve the Lord this summer? Lord, can I earn some money this summer? Whatever. Lord, what do you want me to do? And that's really the whole core of what I'd like to speak about this morning. First of all, what do you want me to do? I know what I want to do, but that's not the question he asks. And I think 50, at least 50, maybe closer to 90% of the time, we're saying, Lord, I had this plan, and I want you to help me do it. That's my prayer, right? And that, but the question is, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the answer to that sometimes comes through reading the word. It's clear. Sometimes the advice of godly friends. Um, you know, you can get good advice if you spend a dollar and sixty cents for a cup of coffee for somebody. Um, that's a great way to make a friend. You can buy a friend for a dollar sixty. Buy them a cup of coffee. Okay. And sometimes you get good advice there, uh, especially from a godly brother. Or if you're a woman or a godly sister, uh, you get good advice at very low cost. And that's how God can speak to us sometimes and kind of open, answer, start to answer this question. But he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Okay, well, 
I've got great plans. I've got great plans for Dave Dixon here. I've got great plans for Rod Chance. I've got great plans for John. Uh, got great plans for Magdi. I've got great plans for Sam. But that's not the prayer. The question is, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that's the way we have to pray. What do you want me to do in this situation? Um, I have dreams for these guys. I have dreams, dreams for you, Ricky. I, I think you're fantastic. You, uh, and Andrew and Nikki and uh, you too, David. But the question is, you have to, it's a personal thing. What do you want me to do? And that's really what Paul is saying. It's down to this point. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Okay. Uh, he's calling for some action here. Saul is on the ground. And he's praying, Lord, he acknowledges the God of heaven, has all the authority over his life. What do you want me to do? Direct me, give me, may my feet go in the right direction. And my hands go in the right direction. Okay, what do you want me to do? That's the question. He recognized him as the Lord. And the answer is just so, so important. If you're not a believer today, uh, this is an extremely important question to you. What do you want me to do? Uh, and the answer is to trust Christ as your personal savior. So let me just reflect on this just for a moment because most of us here know the Lord as our personal savior and we know we've heard God speaking to us and there's been a time in our life when we said, come to the end and said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness. And I know that Jesus Christ died on that cross, shed his blood for my sins. And I'm gonna take that and fully trust it, trust him as my savior. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever gone into surgery where you've gone under. Uh, I've gone several times. And basically what they do is the anesthesiologist comes in and explains things to you, and the doctor may come in and share things with you. And they get, put something in your arm to kind of calm you down, and then something uh, over you, and you go start counting, and you're, you, that's it. You know, next thing you know, a couple hours later, you're waking up. But in that period of time that you're laying on that, I don't know what you call, a gurney, you have committed your life to that anesthesiologist and that doctor. You have committed your life to him. He can do anything, she can do anything with you she wants. You have committed your life. And that's kind of, that, that is what trusting Christ is all about, committing your life to Christ, is I trust you. Not only for now, I trust you for eternity. If I should die, I trust you. I'm ready for heaven because your blood was shed for me. The only plea I have at, at, at the judgment seat of Christ, uh, the, at God's judgment is Jesus died for me. That's it. And you take that by faith. We live by faith each day. Every day I go through uh, a green light, okay, on Foothill Boulevard, and I have faith that the people seeing the red light have stopped, right? I have faith. Another thing is, is sometimes I'll get a check in the mail. That's a promise. That check is a promise, a promissory note. Right? It'll say something like, pay to the order of, it has my name. That's a promise. 
And that's what God is doing to us. He's given us a promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And John 3.16, which you read this morning, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That who, whosoever is my name there. Whoever is whoever. That's God's promise. And how do you receive a, a promissory note? If I handed you a promissory note, a check, you have to take it, okay? And you're taking it on faith. That's what faith is all about. The evidence is the check with my name on it. That's the evidence. You can take that and, and, and get cash for it, okay? It's as simple as that. And that's what God's desire, if, if the question for you is what action should I take now is, Lord, what do you want me to do? If you don't know him as your personal savior, he wants you to trust him and take Christ as your personal savior. That's his will for you. It's very simple. For a believer, another issue, and this might it might be both issues for you, I don't know, both not knowing the Lord as your Savior, and you want that first, then you have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The issue might be, well, I have uh, a terrible job. I gotta, you know, I'm coming up with examples. Or uh, I don't have any finances, I have no money. Or what can I do now for the Lord? Mm, that's a better question, you know, and I think we got some good answers last Wednesday night when uh, Craig was here from CMML, but he's, he's going to be sharing more later. Uh, we had a visitor on Wednesday night, if you weren't here, uh, Craig Fritchie, a young man from CMML who wants to establish a missionary, missionary conference for every, all of the assemblies on the West Coast. And uh, he's, he's been going to the various assemblies and talking to the brethren there. And he came here last Wednesday and shared it with us. But maybe that'll speak to someone's heart. Maybe a short-term ministry in a different country, time to share the Lord with whatever gifts you might have. You might love kids and say, well, I, I have this skill with kids. Maybe I can use that to tell them about Jesus. Okay, and that's, you know, that, that's that, again, that might be the Lord speaking to you. What if it's a relationship issue with your boss, your spouse, your best friend, your family, whatever? I want some, I want some direction, Lord, now. I want to do something now. What do I do now? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation at work. I mean, this has happened to me. I've been in a boring, boring situation at work. And I ask myself, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? The answer is... You have to do something, right? You, have to, you can't just sit there and moan. What are you going to do? I've always updated my resume and asked myself, who can I send this thing to? <laughs> you do something, right? And pray about it. Do something. Uh, and, and that's what Paul, uh, Paul asked. What do you want me to do? Get, do you want me to just lay here like an idiot? Or do you want me to get up and walk back to Jerusalem and, you know, uh, confess my failures and all that? Well, the Lord tells him, and that's the amazing thing about the Lord. He tells him exactly what to do. Here's the action that's required. Verse 6. Arise, okay, get up off your feet. 
and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So he's going to go on to Damascus. He's going to get up. Right away, the Lord tells him what to do. You know, and I know some of you are really men and women of action. And sometimes we need to know. And, but this is all he tells them. That's all, he, that's all the guidance he has right now. And sometimes that's all the Lord gives us is enough for the first step. Here he is enough for the next mile or two to get into Damascus, which is great. But he doesn't give them the grand plan. That unfolds, and we'll find out why later. But it's, sometimes the Lord just tells us what to do now. If it's a twinge of con for conscience, maybe what he wants you to do right now is to call the person who's been offended or who has offended you, a phone call. It might be $1.60 for a cup of coffee, okay, to meet with this person. But do something. That's what he's, what's the, what's the action? What can I do right now? And the rest of it will unfold. And the Lord does this. And you can just see it in, in Saul, soon to become Paul's life. It unfolds. And he finds out greater and greater things about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And... He knows a little bit. He's, he knows a little bit about the Lord now, but to know the Lord and to have the full knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes his ultimate goal in life. And how he gets it is something that unfolds, and God's going to tell him gradually. And so it is with our lives; they're, they're woven, but it's one thread at a time. Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So what does Saul do? Verse 8. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But he got up, okay? He immediately obeyed the Lord. And sometimes we have to do that, too. If God saw something clear from his word that we, we, we know we should be doing, we need to do it immediately. So Paul arose, Saul arose. And what Saul didn't know was that God was working in the heart of another believer, just a certain disciple. He was not exceptional, I don't think, uh, just uh, an obedient uh, believer like you and I. He, he was not a great uh, you know, pillar of the church. He was just Ananias. That's all he was, just Ananias, a certain disciple. He got his name in the Bible, uh, which was good, but there's nothing, nothing distinctive about him except he listens to the Lord. And the Lord tells him to go to a certain house on a street called Straight Street. And he goes. And the Lord tells him there's going to be a man there who wants to talk to you. Verse 11. Well, I think Ananias' response is very good too. Verse 10, let's look at it. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. He had his full attention. Right? Just like Samuel. Master, speak, thy servant heareth. And so Ananias, he was obedient. He may not have been a great, he's just a certain disciple. But he was obedient. Here am I, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. I think then this is as far as we'll go in this, uh, in this message. Uh, but verse 11, uh, he, 
Ananias, you know, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Here I am, Lord. He's ready to go and rise and go, okay? So he's having a vision. He's probably sleeping, right? If you're having a vision, usually you're sound asleep uh, sometimes. In any case, he went and he found this one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And that speaks to our own hearts of the next step. Okay, we, we have this, the Lord starts speaking to us and it might be in a quiet sort of way and all of a sudden it might be something dramatic. It was in Saul's life, uh, but maybe not all the time, but I guess if we're more attentive like Ananias, we immediately respond and we have the Lord's attention. I think that's what the Lord is trying to build, uh, develop us into, to listening to his voice and being mature enough to recognize that it is the Lord's voice, it's not the world, it's the Lord speaking to us, something that will honor him. And that's the direction he wants us to go. And Ananias is mature enough to do that. He gets up and he goes and he finds Paul. Paul's still learning. So what's he doing? He's praying. Here's somebody who knew the Old Testament better than anybody else in Damascus. And he could probably, he probably said more prayers than anybody else in Damascus. But all of his prayers were mechanical. They were probably right, you know, maybe a good psalm. He would recite that psalm as a prayer. They were good, but they're not from the heart. And so he had probably said more prayers than anybody, but now he's praying. He's actually communicating to God. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? Okay, what's the next step? We find out he stays there for a while. And you can read the rest of the chapter to find out what he does next. But the point is that that verse is so precious and so important. I just pray to God you would memorize it. It's Acts 9 and 6. Lord, what do you want me to do? And he could be speaking to you right this morning, and I hope he is. There might be some issue in your life. If you don't know the Lord, today is the day to get saved. Okay, so simply trust him as your personal savior. If there's some issue, your job. May, may God just open up a path that will bring honor to him by your saying that prayer this morning. Let's pray, and we have a minute, so maybe, Dave, could I ask you, could we leave, sing one hymn before we close? It would be number 322. Uh, we'll pray first, and then if we could sing that hymn. 322 is, Master, speak thy servant here. That's Samuel's what Samuel said to the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do? 322? Uh, oh, the wrong one. Oh, 223. 223, two, I'm sorry. 223. Two, can, can you play, Amy? Thank you. 223. Two, Master, speak thy servant here. Thank you, Dave. Mm. Let me open, close with a word of prayer first, then we'll sing this hymn together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word and uh, how you spoke to Saul and then used him in your own uh, powerful, powerful way. We bless and thank you, Lord, for uh, how you worked in Saul's life. He became Paul, the little one, and yet his ministry was so great and so powerful. It speaks to our hearts today. May his prayer be our prayer. May we be sensitive to your leading in our life and your voice and uh, respond immediately as we hear from Ananias. Uh, we just thank you, Lord, for the example. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.